the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. 602-508-0960 is the number. I had an email from a listener saying, Seth, what happened to that infectious laugh you used to uh, use on radio? I, it's it's not gone. It's just it's not – it's hiding this week. It's it's a harder week, right? Um, it'll come back. We'll laugh again. We'll laugh again soon. Uh, I, thank you. If you're on hold, please hold. I'll get to you shortly. I just can't get this off my mind. If you want to know you're in the presence of a, sh- of a political charlatan, you will know that their first debate is a denial of your ability to reason as a human being. Their first debating tactic is your denial as a human being to be able to reason because they will empty you from the category of discussion and debate if you don't have the experience necessary as they say it. Listen to this as illustrative from Jen Psaki today being questioned from a reporter about the new abortion law in Texas. Following up on the census law, why does the president support abortion when his own Catholic faith teaches abortion is morally wrong? He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. Why does the president, who does he believe then should look out for the unborn child? He believes that it's up to a woman to make those decisions uh, and up to a woman to make those decisions with her doctor. I know you've never faced those choices, nor have you ever been pregnant, but for women out there there who face those choices. Yeah, you you haven't faced those choices, so you don't get a vote on this. You don't get to talk about this. I've heard this for years. The first time I heard it was actually from a Republican, a Republican out of Wyoming named Alan Simpson who was a pro-choice Republican who said, I don't even think men have a right to talk about this. Okay, then Jen Psaki can stop talking, I assume, about issues having to do with the African-American community. She not ever having been part of it. She not ever having to experience what it's like to be black. I presume, too, that we would not allow women to talk about anything that has to do with a man. Of course, this gets very confused now that women claim they were once men and can give birth. So Jen Psaki's talking point may be a little outdated. You see, Bill Maher owes Dennis Prager an accounting. When Dennis Prager was last on Bill Maher's show... And he was asked by Bill why he wasn't bothered by Trump's lies. Dennis said, because I'm much more bothered by the lies of the left, which are much more consequential, to which Bill Maher said, give me an example. And Dennis said, men menstruating. And Bill Maher laughed and said, that nowhere exists except in your imagination. Except we now have men pregnant, at least so they tell us. So Saki may be a little outdated. 
and perhaps she'll even get in trouble. Like the professor of medicine at the University of California who spoke about when women get pregnant because students objected saying, you know, men can as well. But the notion that you have to experience something to have an understanding or knowledge of it is a debating tactic of the idiotic. I probably know far more about a lot of things that some people experienced at the time that I did not than they ever did. And you do too. And you do too. You know right now any student of World War II, anyone who has read a book about World War II knows a lot more about World War II than most of the actors in it at the time. I've never been in a concentration camp. I have plenty to say about why they're wrong, and I don't think I have to have been there to know that. And a lot of us support the 14th Amendment, presumably including Democrats, though they were never enslaved or deprived of voting or other civil rights. And though I've never lived in Kabul, or any other part of Afghanistan, I know it's about to be something far worse than hell. This is the expected coin of political discussion and sophistication we are now treated to. I don't really care for the question that was asked Joe Biden. It doesn't get you very far. Not very, not beyond the curiosity. He's been answering that question his whole life, as have other Catholic Democrats. It's a waste of a question. But her answer is the waste of a political operative. Pat, uh, no, first, uh, yes, Patrick and Mesa. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Hi. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the show. Thank you for calling. On, uh, you're welcome. I wanted to piggyback on this uh, little discussion about the vetting of the refugees. Uh, the vetting is basically they don't know our language. They have their own social mores. They return retain their own family traditions, and they have no knowledge of America. Now, where do we go from there? They get educated in the leftist public school system here in America. They take advantage of all the opportunities that we have. And in 20 years, what do we have? A protege of Ilhan Omar or her replacement. At best, in many scenarios, at best, in many scenarios, I worry yeah. about the second generation. You know, we've never really solved. Thank you for the call, Patrick. It's a sophisticated point, And let me add to it. When we looked deeply or when we took an in-depth look at who became homegrown terrorists, after 9-11 in America, it was interesting that most of them were either Americans who had never come from another country and who converted to Islam in their teens for whatever reason. Think of someone like Adam Kadan in California. I can talk more about him if you want. He changed his name, came from a Jewish family, changed his name, converted to Islam and 
became a spokesman for al-Qaeda until we killed him. If it wasn't someone like that, more often than not, it's what you call the second-generation problem. They were immigrants to America from Muslim countries, and the immigrants, the parents, the people who made the decision to immigrate were good and grateful Americans. It was that second generation, their children, that were more apt to become terrorists. Think of the Tsarnaev brothers in the Boston Marathon bombing as an example. There are legions of examples. And what is that reason? Why is it that that second generation was so problematic? Precisely because of what you said. Precisely, Patrick, because of what you said regarding American culture and our education system. Do you recall when one of the Sarnayev brothers, the one who lived, the one who lived, uh, I think his name was uh, Dohar. Uh, What was his first name? Dohar Sarnayev? Jahar Sarnayev. I think it was Jahar Sarnayev. The one who lived. When the Rolling Stone magazine put him on the cover and they were criticized for doing so because they created what some had called terrorism chic. It was a very flattering picture of this terrorist who had killed Americans. They interviewed his teacher from a pretty good school. There weren't that many bad schools in the Boston area. But he was a pretty good school. And the teacher spoke about these second generationers. And he said what you said. He said the problem with this demographic is they do not know the basic narratives of their histories or really any narratives. They're blazed on pot and searching the Internet for any factoids that they believe fit their highly dehistoricized and decontextualized ideologies. And the adult world totally misunderstands them and dismisses them and does so at our collective peril. I don't know if smarter and wiser and more ominous words have ever been uttered. The problem with this demographic is that they do not know their basic narratives or their histories. They're blazed on pot and searching the Internet for any factoids they believe fit their highly dehistoricized and decontextualized ideologies, and the adult world totally misunderstands them and dismisses them and does so at our collective peril. Now think about what that means when our side is censored on the Internet. I have a lot more to say about that point, Patrick, but you're on to something important and terrible. There's one other thing about Jen Psaki's statement that I had to uh, focus on for just a half a sec. Uh, Bill, do you mind playing Jen Psaki again today? She was asked about the abortion law in Texas. It was a bit of a – the question, I guess, is okay. It it, it just seems to me like it's been asked and answered a million times. But in any event, it hasn't been answered this way in a long time, this immaturely. Go ahead. He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. Great. Now do vaccines and masks. Play it again. When his own Catholic faith teaches abortion is morally wrong. 
he believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. Great. I'll say it again. Now do masks and vaccines. I don't have more to say on that than that. Doug is in Maricopa. Hi, Doug. Doug, I'm going to help you as your customer service agent with AT&T and tell you to release the mute button. We get it? <laughs> yeah. Yes, there yes, we yes, go. Yes. There we go. Here's what I want I, you to I, do. I, Just put a piece of tape over it. <laughs> I get working again. But not You're, scotch I'm tape. Not, not I, scotch tape. I'm nothing if I'm not predictable, right? Not, not uh, scotch guys. tape. Hey, Seth, you know, I, I want to compliment you on today's show. I always enjoy, uh, this, you know, how you handle the subjects. And I, I, one of my favorite books I've been reading lately is, is The Treasury of the World's Great Speeches. Uh, goes back, it was published back in 54. It goes everywhere from Isaiah to Cicero. Oh, this sounds great. Julius. This was published in oh. 1954? Yeah, yeah. Because a I, lot of great speeches my, has come have come since. I'd love to know what the – I'd love – can you – Take a picture of the table of contents or whatever and send sure. it to me. Oh my God! Yeah, you're talking about you know, like I said, uh, Edmund Burke. Yeah, you know, William Pitt in Before the Revolution. Oh, I totally need know, to Franklin. see this. Oh, it, it is just wonderful. But <clears throat> one of the things in there I wanted to compliment. Did it make? Did it? That, did Churchill's Iron Curtain speech make it? It may not have. It may not. Um, have. Uh, I'm not that far. I'm I bet it didn't. Sure. Anyway, doesn't matter. Go ahead. Okay. I, ho- I hope it does because I, I have a separate uh, copy of that. <laughs> one of the things, one of the things Cicero said is, and this is pertaining to you and what part of why I think so many of us like the show, is that if truth were self-evident, eloquence would not be necessary. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. Cicero said that. Yeah. Yep, Cicero. Wow. Thank you. I like that quote. Yeah. Well, in, in it reminds in, me of a debate. You want to laugh? Yeah. I, people miss my laugh. You yep. want to laugh? I'll give you a laugh. Yep, let's laugh. There was a uh, famous conservative political scientist out of Fordham University for many years named Ernest von den Hogg. Occasionally, he would appear on firing line. I think he was an editor at National Review. He was debating my teacher, Harry Jaffa, once about the Declaration of Independence and Harry's uh, firm, if not ardent belief in self-evident truths and Vandenhag, kind of a paleocon of sorts, said, I don't understand this talk about self-evident truths. I don't think anything is self-evident, Harry. And Harry looked at him and said, you don't think it's self-evident that you're not a dog? And Ernest Vandenhag said, well, I don't think it's self-evident. And Harry said, well, I hope you don't treat me like a fire hydrant. <laughs> anyway, okay, there's our laugh. There's our geeky laugh. There's not 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 your laugh being geeky. There's our laugh over a geeky moment. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, there we go. No, there no. we got me to laugh no. too. Okay. Yeah, we 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 need to laugh or sometimes we'll cry. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's, it's best to look boldly at it and be positive, laugh in 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 its face, you, you know. So uh, you know, and you hear me calling occasionally and saying, you know, we have to realize we're at a time that a lot of the pretenses I have held back on my friends and acquaintances are gone uh, because I have looked in the mirror and I know our enemy is we, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it got me thinking because I was reading some of the speeches that I was talking about and uh, give you some quotes, uh, you know, from some of them, but. Uh, basically, this isn't from the book, uh, but it got me researching on it. Um, 
One is that the death of democracy is not likely to be the assassination from ambush. It will be the slow extinct, uh, ex extinction of apathy, indifference, and undernourishment. And basically, that it is our apathy has let this fester. Mm -hmm. We claim to love liberty, but we have, for the most part, been very. Our, our God has been getting along, letting people ex accept in in lecture the pretenses of the left in both our political class, but do not holler at the the establishment class of the, the Republican Party. We have allowed it in our voting forum and our own lives. And, uh, and Rollo May once said that hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have let it go. We have gone, we thought ourselves more noble. We, we profess to love liberty while we hunt and fish and go to sports thing and, and you know, and we go to our gun in, you know, uh, meetings. I'm, I'm a lifelong member of the NRA. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, um, we claim to love liberty, but we never want to fight for it because no. it might give ruffle some feathers. Well, it's so easy to rely on the 1% and 2 and 3%, isn't it? Let me do this yeah. with you, Doug. I have to take a yeah. quick commercial break. Uh, can you hold? Uh, this is an important issue, and, and, and I want to talk more about it, apathy. While we're at it, do me a favor if you have access, audience as well. I'll give you a homework assignment over our commercial break. Look up the word acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, A-C-E-D-I-A. Interesting old word from the ancients. And tell me if that word, along with apathy, isn't where we are. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. 602 Doug and Maricopa, thanks for waiting. I asked you, you were talking a little bit about, um, well, what was the word you used when you called in? A little bit of what is suffer is, is what, what is America suffering from? I think um, we suffer on the right from a long history of apathy mm -hmm. we, to liberty. We expected liberty to exist in its foundation form. We expected it to go on. We, the apathy was in our in the Republican Party's manifestation of always viewing compromise, even though it was always compromising more bureaucracy, more regulations, and uh, you know more taxations, and the slow shift to socialism. It was our apathy as conservatives because we valued quietness and politeness and our football games, basketball games, our church and everything else to liberty. So as we continue to slide, because the left will always answer any question of their slide to the left with anger. And our we we feared anger more than we love liberty. And so we continued to keep them happy by letting it drift to the left. And so we're kind of at a point now where we have to decide if we are willing to fight for liberty 
not in a cruel way, but by answering them and fighting, actually not negotiating bigger bureaucracies and more spending, but actually let them negotiate the speed at which we reduce the bureaucracy and let the left negotiate with us at the speed at which we reduce taxation. But let them negotiate down, and then you'll know that we gave up apathy and we were ready for the fight. There's another quote I I was... Let me stay on that for a second, because the word I wanted to insert, too, was the word acedia, an old Akedian, ancient Greek acedian Latin, which stands for the notion, sort of, of sloth. And it's hard to condemn our entire movement with being slothful when you are right to point out that they're busy doing other important things. Aristotle, on the first page of The Politics, his great book, classic work, The Politics, he says, man is destined to choose between just and unjust, right and wrong, good and evil. And he creates two institutions to preserve that judgment. The two institutions are, he says, the polis and the family the city-state, the political community, and your family. Interestingly enough, Aristotle says of those two institutions, the polis comes first, and he goes into an interesting discussion about it. But And we can talk about it. But the point he's trying to make is that, you know, they rely on each other. The city-state is for the protection of the family, and the family can only operate functionally, can only operate at its best or through its – another Greek word he used, telos, its end. The purpose of the family can only continue if the city-state is healthy enough to protect it, if the political community that has been designed by man is sufficient enough to protect the family. And that means that there does have to be the kind of busyness you talked about, Doug, the kind of interactions that a community normally has, little league games, baseball, sports, athletics, church, gun clubs, civic associations, everything you said. So given the busyness that we conservatives and in many cases all Americans engage in, it's hard to indict them for being slothful, except, except – There is a political and spiritual apathy or acedia. Let me explain it in the terms that you were putting your finger right on, right on. And they come from Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his famous 1978 Harvard speech. He said, quote, in the United States, the difficulties are not a minotaur or a dragon, not imprisonment, hard labor, death, government harassment and censorship, but... Cupidity, boredom, sloppiness, and indifference. Not the acts of a mighty, all-pervading, repressive government, but the failure of a listless public to make use of the freedom that is its birthright. Great words there. And look at what it led to. It led to what he said were not our problems. Repressive government, censorship, and the like. Because of our acedia. Because of our failure to make use of the freedom that is our birthright, we ended up with imprisonments and censorship and government's repression. You can hold. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 602-508-0960 is how you're not supposed to say it. 602-508-0960 is how you are. Doug, are you still with me? Yes, I am. I'm going to give you one more quote, and then I'll let you talk. Great novelist, Walker Percy. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't remember the quote exactly. I had to look it up. Uh, a great novelist. Uh, he trained as a physician. He became a southern uh, novelist. Uh, the movie goer, The Last Gentleman, were some of his novels. He um, he was once asked um, what he thought the problem in America was, and he said probably America, with all its great strength and beauty and freedom, watching it gradually subside into decay through default and be defeated, not by the communist movement, he said this in the 80s, but from within, by weariness, boredom, cynicism, greed, and in the end, helplessness before its greatest of problems. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. This is a theme that runs deep. It's a theme that runs deep from 1838 to now, the idea that if death be our our lot, it will only come from suicide. It'll come from our own pen. Yeah. You know, um, I I have so many quotes, and I'm talking about this brilliant book and the list of brilliant speeches. And here I'm going to just get right down in the gutter. I'm going to quote someone, but the quote is wonderful. Uh, It's from Jesse Ventura. (laughs) But... Not my favorite. In uh, the campaign for moral virtue, no auxiliaries should be discouraged. Uh, Well, this one. President Elliott of Harvard. Anyone anyone who can help you, bring them in. Bring them in. Well, here it is. Government is at its worst when you have apathy from its citizens. And, but I, I if know, for a country that believes in self-government, that's right. I, Jesse Ventura is one. I'll give you a little better. Irving Crystal, for those who believe in self-government, you better have cells worthy of governing. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. But I, I'd like to frame the argument because I don't want to make it sound like I'm down on our movement. I, 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 I believe assessment is very important without being negative in any way. It's really a, an exciting growth chance we have. I just believe that apathy was a, a, a symptom of a stable political life and that we never readjusted But what uh, to the, the, the less encroachment, and it became more and more irrelevant, our apathy, and it manifested itself in many ways, like I was talking about, the lack of wanting any kind of disruptive language, uh, the lack of aggress- uh, pushing in any kind of a, a group. And that's why I've said for years here on this show that when you have a group of five people in any organization, one liberal and five conservatives, you will have six liberals because of the l- rights apathy. We always bite into their argument and our 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 sacrament is getting along and to get along with the left means you give the left what it wants or they will not be quiet but we make the mistake of assuming that we're quenching the beast but the beast only goes bolder and more aggressive the more we capitulate and we have capitulated ourselves into a tipping point at this point but the problem I worry about is that when we awaken from apathy, we have as citizens on the right 
we grow, we can go in two very ways, and I think they're both bad, and we got to make it positive. We can get so angry. Angry or anger is totally unproductive, except if it's put to a positive use, that is to make us put us into action. And the other is helplessness and depression, which is also a totally a worthless emotion, and it, and it allows us to do nothing. And I think we should use that to wake us up and then do something positive like take action to begin to speak out knowing that all heck is going to break loose. But it usually, just remember, when they spoke up about slavery, all heck broke loose. But it was the great evil before the Civil War was Americans' apathy. Most of the apathy came from people who did not own slaves. They just did not want to face the wrath of the slaveholders, so they buried their head for decades. And so we are at this point is, let's make it positive. We have to realize we can never stop the left except when they're enraged, because any disagreement means you're a racist, homophobe, and every great evil. So just take that as normal. And begin to say, Doug, Doug I, I will, and I do, and I'm going to ask you to take as normal what will start next week. No more Afghanistan headlines, but July 6th commission investigation headlines. That's what yep. will happen next week. I hope right. I hope you're prepared for it. Yep. I mean, th- yep. there's 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 another phrase that you're describing too, Doug. Uh, my producer Bill drew it out of the story of Kitty Genovese. You know the the story of Kitty Genovese. 1964. No, no, I don't. Please Nin- do yeah, check it out. It's it's um, it's 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 a story with a lot of reverberations in culture and literature. She was uh, uh, a woman who was uh, beat up and uh, killed in uh, in New York City. In um, a group of people pa- uh, were watching, watched it happen, and mm-hmm. it's it's created what was known as the bystander effect because no one did anything. They all watched it and assumed either someone else was doing something to help Kitty or that it was deemed too dangerous to do something. It leads to what's known as plural ignorance or pluralistic ignorance. That's the phrase Bill seized on. It's an issue in sociology, in psychology, pluralistic ignorance, where people will act against the norms of society or their own moral code. When in a group, the group ethic teaches them to do so. The group ethic teaches them to do so, to violate the norms of society or their own moral code. Pluralistic ignorance. In other words, how could a group of seemingly decent and normal people stand by and simply watch as Kitty Genovese or as anyone was being abused? It's a question we may have to ask ourselves at a societal level. How have we engaged in so much pluralistic ignorance? Oh, the other guy will do something about it. Or the 1% will take care of me. Or there won't be any possible way so-and-so would get elected. I don't need to vote or canvas or march or protest or stand on a corner. You know who doesn't believe in pluralistic ignorance? The left. I don't know if the right believes in it either, but too often it engages it. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. I had a lot I wanted to say, but I'll end this way, given that really 
penetrating call by Doug. William Faulkner. People still read William Faulkner. I don't know. When he won the Nobel Prize in 1950, he declared that he declined to accept the end of man. He said, man will not merely endure but prevail because he alone among the creatures has a soul and a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. Compassion, sacrifice, and endurance. I think we have plenty of one of those. I think we're lacking in two. Today, I think in the same way we should refuse to accept the end of moral man, Doug. We we have to carry on the struggle, if not for those who still believe in us and those of us that believe in us, but for our children, truly, for our children. Um, we can consign them to this or we can fix it. And if we fix it, if we fix it, we'll be obviously a confident, upstanding, upright, walking people that will feel as good about themselves, not only as they should, but as good about themselves as we probably haven't felt since something like 1984. 1984. I would ask you to try and remember seven. Uh, excuse me. I would. I was going to try and ask you to remember 1976. That may be too much of a reach. But for those of us a little bit 50 or older, we remember what it meant to live in an America like that. We lived through it, and we remember that words like "Oh, beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife, who more than self their country loved, mercy more than life." We remember the meaning of those words from America the Beautiful. You know why? Because a lot of us, God please may it be the majority, still think of America as beautiful. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Bill, thank you. Anthony, thank you. Class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>